This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered rep- representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree, and our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. The views of our guests are their own, and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have a really interesting show. We have a local Philadelphia chief investment strategist with us for the hour. We're talking to Amanda Agati from PNC about her worldviews, what's happening in the markets. Uh, and I know some of the views, Professor, it'll be interesting in contrast to some of the things you're talking about. But when you're looking at the markets here, the trends, bonds, what's, what's your, your latest? Yeah, well, a lot of interesting trends. I mean, uh, you know, so let's, let's concentrate on the macro. Uh, you know, the, the story out there in the market is um, yields. And the higher yields are supposed to be more negative for the tech sector because of their long-term cash flows. That's the way the market interprets it. So really, we, we've seen vi- you know, a violent shift between value and growth uh, of a magnitude that we haven't seen for a couple of decades. Um, as you know, after years of outperformance, Last six months have been about the best time for value we have seen. Now, it still has not caught up to, you know, the, the, a five-year horizon of how well growth stocks have gone, but an incredible uh, revival of the, uh, of the value uh, stock uh, story. And uh, now the, it flips back and forth uh, depending on yield. Now, for instance, today, Yields are up around uh, eight basis points on the 10-year, 162, and uh, we got Nasdaq down 113, and the Dow up 44 basis points. Um, th- this is this is uh, the 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 story. We had David Tepper on earlier saying, "I don't think yields are going to go up much more. I I think that if if you do the ja- uh, Jap- he said a Japanese calculation of uh, of their their forward." spreads versus the yields between the Japanese bonds and the U.S., there's going to be a lot of Japanese buying. I am very skeptical. My research does not show a lot about intended buying of foreigners and what's going to be happening into the Treasury market. I think inflation and economic growth are going to overwhelm anything that might happen or might not happen from Japan or China or, or anything in that. So I'm not... I'm, I, uh, you know, I was asked on CNBC about Depper, and I, I, I did did not agree with, with, uh, with that uh, assessment. I think yields will continue to rise, but the stimulus, as we know, was was passed and signed yesterday, as expected. Uh, the flood of money into the market is going to continue to buoy the whole market, but uh, my feeling is that the reopening stocks. And the yield stocks will prevail because I believe the the steady march of yields is going to be upward. Obviously, with day to day fluctuations, as uh, as will be the as will be the case. How do you think? I mean, I know one of your calls had been um, we've been talking for a while this inflation call, and then you know what benefits from that? You see gold, which had been doing pretty well, but now facing these rising rate pressures. Are you still bullish yeah, gold? How, how yeah. are you thinking about that? Yeah. And by the way, let's talk a little bit about the inflation pressure. We've, you, you, uh, today we had the producer price index, which was as expected. Now, you know, last month uh, it was a blowout, and we, we pointed it out on the show. We also had a consumer price index, which was also as expected. So the two price indices this month that's been reported have not been scary. Uh, to the markets. One has to remember that uh, this is for the month of February. I mean, the reopening 
is going to be happening in, into the future. Uh, we'll begin to get a little of it, you know, more in in the April report, reporting March. Um, uh, obviously, it's you know some of these funds that are going to be spent and getting into people's pockets are are going to fuel it into the spring. So uh, uh, we got two good reports on that. Uh, listen, the the story on gold um, uh, is is Bitcoin is the fascinating thing to to do the inflation heads. The young people want it. Uh, and uh, the gold is, is suffering. Also, gold is suffering a bit because the dollar has been stronger. In response to the rise in U.S. yields, we have gotten a rise in the dollar, nowhere near as much of the decline. That has also put pressure on gold. I still think gold should not be abandoned, but it's, it's challenged by young people saying that's not where I want to go for inflation protection. We've, we've talked about emerging markets and commodities, and they continue to be very, very strong, although a pause in the CRB index, again, caused by the fact that the dollar has stabilized uh, in, response to this, uh, in response to this rise in, in yield. My feeling is, is that more and more people realize the rise in yield is inflationary and not a real yield, rise uh that will uh, stop the 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 flows into the dollar and the dollar will uh, resume its uh, depreciation uh, into the future very good any other big themes that you're you're focused on here no i mean i i uh, again reopening vaccination rates uh, great springtime coming uh people are feeling a different world here um as i mentioned wednesday uh my wife and i we went out inside in a restaurant for the first time in a year, and wow. let me tell you, it felt really good. Um, so this is, I think, the the story of uh, what is going to be happening into the future, and um, uh, uh, I think this is going to continue to uh, drive a positive market tone. Yeah, and I, and I know you said you got some good, exciting weekend plans, so I will uh, I will let you get to that. But good to see some life getting back to normal. Thank you, thank you very much, and. Uh, uh, yes, my family's leaving for Anguilla tomorrow in the Caribbean, so I'm hoping to be able to connect for you next Friday from there. Very good. Well, enjoy some nice uh, nice time off. Thank you. Right. We're going to be talking now with uh, Amanda Gotti from PNC. Um, she's uh, chief investment strategist for, uh, I think, their asset management group and, and, and recently got, got a new position there. Amanda, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So tell us a little bit about your yourself, your background, uh, your role at, at PNC. Okay, sure. Well, so I am currently the chief investment strategist. Uh, you're right, for the asset management group. Um, we have about $170 billion in assets under management uh, spread across uh, clients that comprise the private wealth continuum as well as the institutional um, asset management business. Um, I just recently, we had a flurry of activity, very exciting, just recently named as the successor to our chief investment officer. He will be retiring um, in early April, and so I will be stepping into his role. Definitely big shoes to fill there, but I'm just super excited um, about the opportunity I think it's going to be really fun to see how this business grows and evolves over the next few years. Definitely a big job ahead, but um, it's going to be really neat to have uh, input and control over the investment offering for the business. So very, very excited, feeling very, very blessed. Well, we're lucky to have you here after uh, after such a nice promotion. So congratulations on, on the new position and looking forward to watching what you do there. Um, Maybe you could give us a little bit on your, your top down. Uh, you heard some of Professor Siegel's views on on the outlook, his views on, on sort of rising rates. Maybe give us your macro take on how you're looking at the world today and and how you know what's similar, what's different uh, of the way you look at the world today. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I was listening very, very intently on some of the, the key messages. I mean, I think the, the best place to start is probably with what's going on in fixed income markets and in terms of rates and certainly um, inflation. I think our general overarching view is that both the move in rates and the concern around inflation is a bit of a head fake and a bit overdone. Um, we can unpack kind of all the different reasons why that's the case. I think in terms of rates themselves, very specifically, 
There's some technical issues that are happening at the very short end of the curve based on what the Treasury is doing to adjust their cash reserves. And so I think that's putting a lot of pressure on the very short end. And then at the intermediate and longer end, we have the market really driving rates meaningfully higher. And it's this interpretation or concern on the part of the bond market that inflation is going to run red hot, that we're going to overstimulate this economy and ultimately uh, end up in a bit of a, a, a predicament here. I think our view on it is really that, you know, obviously we're getting this $1.9 trillion in fiscal stimulus coming in here to the rescue. Um, but the bond market is worried that we're going to not only do that, we're going to turn right around and do a similar type of stimulus package, but focused on infrastructure as well of a similar magnitude or larger. Just turn right around and do that in very short order. Uh, our view on this is they're never going to be able to get all that done without starting to bring tax increases back into the conversation. Yes, they're getting the $1.9 trillion done for, uh, with budget reconciliation. Yes, in theory, they have another shot at using it to do more later in the year. But I just think that tax increase story is going to start to become really important in, the ter in terms of how we pay for infrastructure, et cetera, going forward. And so I think that's really going to come into the equation here put the brakes on things because that's notoriously difficult to get done. And so I think a lot of the pressure that we're seeing on the intermediate and longer end, plus the technical issues that are happening at the short end, leading to really rapidly steepening of the curve. And so I think it's more about that than it's just simply a function of the reopening trade. I think there's, there's a lot more to unpack there. In terms of inflation, I mean, we've heard over and over again that the Fed is comfortable letting run, uh, inflation run a little hot. You know, lower than expected inflation has been the problem for I've forgotten how long. I've lost track of how many years, you know, we've struggled to even come close to getting to the 2% target. So we're not particularly concerned about this idea that inflation may run a little bit hot in the short run. I think we still have too many deflationary forces Still in control, thinking about demographics both in the U.S. and across much of the developed world, to me feels very disinflationary or deflationary. That's not something that's going to go away anytime soon. You got to think about technological innovation. I mean, that is absolutely keeping a lid on inflation. The technology story is really the one bright spot in the midst of the pandemic. They've been able to really pull away from the pack. And so, we really believe technological adoption and also innovation is just going to continue accelerating and also having an impact on longer term um, inflation forecasts. And then the other one, uh, and I can go on and on about this topic because it's just so top of mind, is what's happening in the oil market. And it's, I think it's very much connected to optics and kind of the easier comparisons that we are finding ourselves just on the verge of. So, you know, is it any surprise that we're starting to see a pickup in uh, commodity prices? We're effectively bouncing off record no activity, not record low, but record no activity um, versus the, the shutdowns in the pandemic that kicked off last spring. And so we're entering a period of very easy, extraordinarily easy comparisons. I think that's making the optics around energy and commodity prices look worse than it really is. I think the other thing that's come into the equation is what's happening, um, still the, the lingering fallout from the severe weather that hit the, the middle of the country, in Texas in particular, we still don't have production fully back online there. And so as the weather improves, as production comes back online, we do think many of the energy-specific commodity prices will start to settle in and normalize a bit. So we're, we're definitely in the camp that this rate move is way too far, way too fast, and that the inflation story, again, from an, from an optics standpoint, looks a little scary, but at the end of the day, we'll settle back in as comps start to get more challenging in the middle of the year. So a, a lot happening there on the, the interest rate, fixed income, inflation front, um, but, but we aren't making meaningful changes around portfolio positioning in response to it, kind of given this overarching view. 
No, I mean, there's a, a lot to, to dive in on all that. And it's great. We've been talking a lot on with Siegel giving this inflation and higher rates narrative. So it's good to hear the, the other side. So let's, let's drill in a little bit more on, on a few of the points. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned is, is sort of the, the demographics and tech trends. I mean, I, I could see some anecdotes on the tech trends personally on, hey, we are, you know, the, this new digitally enabled world. We're going to re, be reducing office space. You know, we are going to be, uh, you know, just the sort of democratization of where you can get talent from becomes much easier, not just in New York, right? You could sort of get lower costs. You could see, you know, I, I think that in some ways a case for some of the emerging markets and how much more they can get plugged into global markets in some ways. But what's your sense on going digital, how this stay at home is, is impacting on, on some of those worldviews? Well, we actually are very much uh, convinced that this going digital, digital transformation even, dare I say, the stay-at-home trade still has a lot of legs to it. And not necessarily because that we're, we're thinking really bearish terms that we're going to continue to stay at home for a meaningful amount of time, but we just think the pandemic has made such a significant dent in really the go-outside trade and many of the components of value in particular that the, the stay-at-home trade, so larger, growthier, you know, tax, com services, healthcare, even staples to an, a degree, have really been able to fundamentally pull away from the pack. I mean, they're the ones that are keeping the fundamentals afloat. They keep having the chops and putting up really solid results quarter after quarter in terms of earnings season that we've seen so far. And so we think that they will continue. Maybe the bifurcation between growth and value will not be as striking as it was, but we still think that they will continue to be in the driver's seat going forward. And and really, why do I say that? Because I think, unfortunately, some of the big exposures that we see embedded in the value index may never fully recover. And so what we're seeing here is this market rallying in anticipation of basically going right back to pre-COVID, pre-pandemic norms, right? There's been this huge sentiment shift, and yet we haven't really seen the underlying fundamentals improve in a meaningful way at all. Um, and so the areas that I'm thinking about in particular that are still very much top of mind are Consumer discretionary, you know, you have to think that some of the behavioral uh, aspects of what the consumer is operating in still under somewhat stay-at-home orders will have staying power to it. Um, And so we think especially when you look at mid and small cap consumer discretionary areas, still very, very challenged. Not a ton of levers to pull there um, if the consumer doesn't really revert back to pre-COVID norms in terms of behavior. Um, you're, you're right to call out, you know, office space. I think REITs in particular, definitely a fundamental reset and reevaluation of how much office space we need, how much uh, brick and mortar retail space we need, and a whole host of other areas. And so not likely to see that bounce immediately back, if, if ever. And I think that that will have an important drag potentially on value-oriented performance um, going forward. The other area, and I kind of teed this up earlier in talking about oil and kind of the transitory effects that are related to what's going on with WTI, and we think the energy sector is likely to continue being very, very challenged going forward. I mean, even if you look at the spot price for WTI in the low 60s per barrel, the futures curve is still sub 50. And so when you look at the smaller components of uh, the value uh, areas for mid, small, and and energy in particular, got a ton of exposure there to North American shale. Profitability based on our analysis really needs WTI to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 bucks a barrel or more. And so the futures curve is certainly not setting us up for a bullish outlook as it relates to energy. And so I do worry, I don't want this to be a a totally bearish uh, segment here, but I do worry a little bit about how far and how fast this value trade has rallied. Again, it's it's been very much a sentiment shift and we have yet to see the fundamentals turn the corner to kind of justify where these valuations are sitting today. So not so concerned about, you know, even even the valuations in, in the tech side and the 
um, digital side and stay-at-home trade side, we think we think the growth prospects there do justify current valuations. Much more concerned on the value side here in the short run. Very, very interesting. We're talking with Amanda Agati, who is the, the chief investment strategist at PNC Asset Management, about their their views. And and I, I love this take where you know a lot of people have been saying you know and and sort of small caps and value have really ripped the last uh, six months. And so interesting to hey that the stay at home still has some some legs behind it. You know, one of the things in 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 value is the financials. Uh, I know one of the things you've talked about a little bit is is the trend towards decentralized finance, DeFi as they call it, sort of the digital world there. Is is part of your view on financials more than just the rates going up driving financials higher? Is there anything on sort of the long-term disruption to traditional banks uh, that may be part of that? Well, that's a doozy of a question considering <laughs> I work for a bank. So I may plead the fifth a little bit on that one. But I mean, I think you you don't want to discount the potential disruption in parts of the industry that the rise in, in some of the cryptocurrencies and certainly the blockchain technology may bring uh, for the industry. I don't that's not necessarily the core of the thesis and, and why we're a little bit cautious around financials. I think it's still very much um, an interest rate story. In, in, in the case of banks in particular, net interest margin compression continues to be really significant. And, you know, loan loss provisioning, although better than expected at this point in the pandemic, we're still effectively not out of the woods yet. And so still thinking about that in terms of pressure on profitability um, going forward. The other thing that we're also very mindful of from a policy stance, you know, the Fed is very much uh, committed to not making any meaningful changes on the policy front, right? They're not thinking about thinking about raising rates. And so we still think it's going to be a pretty tough slog from a policy perspective and in getting any additional juice out of rates. And then to, you know, their continuation around QE, we think that that's just going to limit some of the levers that um, traditional players in the financial sector may have to pull over the foreseeable future. So we're definitely watch. I, I think the whole the whole cryptocurrency phenomenon is just so fascinating. Uh, and the potential innovation there after really, you know, 10 plus years of a drought in terms of innovation is just really neat to see how this evolve. But there's a number of different directions that these things go. This is not one size fits all and they're not all aiming at the same types of use cases. You know, is there a digital gold substitute in in Bitcoin? You know, certainly Ether is more aimed at decentralized finance. Thinking about some of the other coins in terms of fintech and payments, like how can that help evolve the current process? I think there's a ton of opportunity there. I think it's still just very early innings. And, and really, the, the industry and I think most market participants are just fixated on the movement in the coins themselves. We're really interested in the potential use cases and blockchain technology specifically. Many of those use cases, you know, it's hard to even fathom what they will be, right? The, these companies, these entities may not yet exist, but harnessing the power of blockchain technology will be really interesting to see how it evolves. Unfortunately, most of the ways to access that now really reside in the venture capital space, but it's an area that we're, we're really interested in and, and really watching very closely. Yeah, we're talking with Amanda Gotti of PNC Asset Management. Uh, I was actually really curious on how you think about it as from this this chief strategist role, uh, and and do you th- do you see clients wanting to? I mean, sort of the it's going toward this quote unquote decentralized finance, but it's it's also hard for traditional banks to provide access to today. The sort of access vehicles are limited. It's sort of these complicated structures, or like you get a wallet on your phone. Um, do do you think? PNC, are, are you, from your chair as sort of the, the chief strategist, would you want to get allocations to, to Bitcoin in people's portfolios? Have you been thinking about that? Well, we definitely get this question on the regular. And, and our view on this is that it should not necessarily be incorporated into a multi-asset class, you know, holistic portfolio solution. Like we're not of the mindset that it should actually like exposure to Bitcoin specifically should be, and the coins themselves should be a line item in portfolios. That's really something very separate and distinct 
from how we think about asset allocation and portfolio construction. And so it isn't to say, you know, never say never, right? But I think where we think there's uh, interest and sort of opportunity, as I said before, is much more on the blockchain technology side. And so how do we incorporate that type of exposure into portfolios, I think could make a ton of sense. As a general rule, we're not big in investing in currencies themselves. Um, that's just a policy stance that we take. Not that we view crypto necessarily as a currency. We actually think of it more as a commodity, but I think there's a lot of debate out there about how to classify it. But um, we think they, they really reside more in kind of a commodity bucket. And so our general view on commodities is really that we don't want kind of long only commodity exposure. We really think the way to play that appropriately and given the volatility backdrop is to be much more actively managed around it. So what matters is various points in the cycle. You need to be very nimble um, in terms of accessing and playing commodity specific exposure. And so um, it's, it's very unlikely that we would want to put just a slug of, of one of the coins in portfolios because that's really philosophically at odds with how we view commodities and how we think um, that should be approached for our client portfolios. But it isn't that we wouldn't, you know, certainly provide guidance and um, exposure, you know, if, if a client was interested in it, that's certainly a conversation that we're very welcome to having. Um, but, but we do have some, some philosophical thoughts around how it would show up and where and, you know, how big of an exposure it might be in an overall um, portfolio strategy. Very interesting. Yeah, we can't avoid that conversation with, with them flashing the prices everywhere. And uh, no, it's, it's going to be one of those big debates that, that come for some time, I, I feel like. Um, Absolutely. Yes, for sure. In terms of um, final uh, few minutes of the first half of the program here, as we as we set the stage for coming back, as as you look for sort of the major factors, and we talk a little bit about rates and, and the outlook there. Um, when, when you're when you're thinking about building portfolio, you just talked about alternatives. How are you thinking about that from an asset allocation perspective today? Like in terms of what the the macro regime is setting up, where are the types of things you 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 want to build into portfolios? Well, in in the short run, I think an important component of how we're thinking about the world is really this high volatility regime. And I'm not suggesting that it's as high of a regime as certainly what we saw in 2020 because we broke all kinds of records for um, heightened volatility. But we do think uh, that 2021 will definitely be characterized by a high volatility regime. We're not out of the woods yet, right, in terms of the pandemic. We do not have the population fully vaccinated. You know, we still have somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 percent of U.S. GDP in states that are under some form of economic restriction and lockdown. And so this is really part, I didn't even talk about the Reddit raiders adding some volatility to the equation, but we do think the backdrop is likely to remain fairly choppy here over the course of 2021. And so areas that we think are still very much attractive are those where we can find sustainable and high quality growth, certainly sustainable yield and growing yield, if that's even possible, but also ballast in portfolios. And so that's how we're thinking about positioning here in the very short run. Longer term, we think we're at a really interesting point um, where we see, you know, subpar, below average, longer term projections for um, expectations out of equity returns. But given the starting point uh, in fixed income, also very challenged in terms of the path forward uh, for expected returns. So it's an, a very unusual dynamic where we have pressure on two major uh, portions of the portfolio. And so what is an investor to do in a subpar return environment and a very challenged yield environment? We're not saying that this is necessarily the silver bullet, but we do think allocations to alternatives can help uh, in certain client circumstances to help offset some of those pressures um, over the foreseeable future. So re really kind of interesting dynamic unfolding here. 
Yeah, sort of rethinking the 60-40 is one of those very common questions given given these low, low bond yields. We're going to drill into a lot more. We have Amanda Agati for the, the full show here. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Uh, we're just talking about Amanda's outlook for the year and some of the, the volatility she expects ahead. Um, you know, we haven't really talked global markets yet, Amanda. We sort of started the first half focused on what was happening in rates, a little bit on what's happening in the U.S. Uh, as you think about building portfolios around the world, are, are there parts of the world World, um, U.S. versus foreign you're thinking about in allocations? How much do you, do you guys like to go overseas when, when building portfolios? Well, in general, uh, we do have a home country bias, as uh, most of our uh, client base does reside in the U.S., and so we inherently do have a bit larger tilt to, to U.S. equities across the market cap spectrum. But it's actually a great question and very well timed because we are adjusting some exposure in our international equity book. And and I have to say, we wrote this in our 2021 outlook, and it's still very much the case, uh, you know, a few months into the new year that we are really uh, interested in and very favorable on emerging markets. And we really believe that it's the brightest star um, in the equity asset class universe. And so... What I mean by that is, um, you know, if you can if you can believe all of the data out of, you know, COVID and the pandemic, they have done a better job relative to the developed world around managing and controlling the case curves there. And what that has done has, has really enabled them to get their economies more open. So they're leading um, the, the developed world in terms of that, not fully reopened, but certainly ahead of the pack in, in that regard. And that also means that their earnings growth backdrop, and at the end of the day, that's for us, that's where the rubber meets the road in terms of um, investable opportunities and attractive opportunities. What does that trajectory of earnings look like? And so in 2020, they fell less far from an earnings decline perspective, and yet it's the, the highest uh, uh, growth rate projected for 2021 and beyond. And so when you combine those things together with the valuation, uh, relative valuation argument, so um, certainly everything in the equity asset class universe, both domestic and international, has risen, right? It's not stretched to say valuations are indeed stretched, but on a relative basis, we actually think the valuation story um, developed international versus EM favors EM, that this is an interesting time to start nudging up exposure um, to emerging markets. And so uh, other aspects of it, which we don't think they'll need uh, to, to help them out, but they certainly have more policy levers to pull to the extent that there's any kind of disruption or setback, you know, as we track through 2021 on the pandemic front. Um, certainly many policy levers left to pull, whereas developed international in particular has a lot fewer levers or tools in the toolbox. And then even when you look at yields, um, very attractive relative yield pickups uh, versus many other equity asset classes. So we really think that the time is right for emerging markets. You know, it's been a challenging, tough slog for, you know, a decade or more in emerging markets relative to the developed world. These things usually move in very long, slow, um, secular shifts. And so we think this very well could be kind of that inflection point where the baton is going to be handed off to the emerging markets. Um, and we really think there's a, a nice, attractive runway for growth going forward well beyond 2021. But that that's really an a top area of focus mm. for us right now, both in terms of the outlook and also in terms of portfolio positioning. Very interesting. And, you know, when we were talking the first half about some of the, the sort of stay at home um, versus value trade and, uh, you know, the a lot of the developed international is more in that traditional value trade in the financials, the, the 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 energy a little bit less traditional tech and I, I think some of your work has has pointed out sort of the shifting composition where if you look back you know ten years ago when oil was at one fifty you would have seen commodities be a third you know between energy materials of, of a traditional index but now it's very different look and feel when you go to emerging markets it is a very different look and feel absolutely right there's still some big exposures that have always been there like financials is one that's certainly top of mind and I recognize a little bit of the contradictory uh, view as it relates to that. But but absolutely, in terms of the evolution around technology, um, healthcare, it's a very, very different 
um, exposure than it was 10 years ago. Um, you know, we're not banking on, I think if it, if it wasn't clear earlier, we're not banking on this like commodity super cycle to come back on with a vengeance here. But that's okay because the emerging markets are much less exposed to that in the past. I think a nice little benefit or side benefit is that there is indeed still some exposure to commodity producers, you know, namely in Latin America. And so even if we do see in the short run here a little bit of inflation kind of lasting more than, you know, transitory, if you will, there's a little bit of a hedge against that. Um, not that that's the key to the story. It's just a nice little benefit. So we think that, you know, in a growth starved and yield starved world, which is what we continue to find ourselves in, and we expect to see that for a foreseeable future, we think EM is very well positioned. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you, you spoke to the very good relative earnings growth, pretty reasonable valuations. I think um, one of the things that people always point to is just the growing role of China in emerging markets indexes is now up to you know, 40% of a, of a big, you know, standard type index is, is you know, now they're also one of those places where if you're, if you liked, you know, tech in the U.S., you know, that's sort of the tech stars in China are really good competitors to U.S. tech in a lot of ways. But where do you see the U.S.-China power wars, you could might call it, from, uh, from the sort of Trump world to now the Biden administration? How do you think about the, the that as an impact on EM? Well, that is definitely probably the top risk. If I'm weighing the merits and the risks, you know, that has to be the one that's most top of mind, kind of going into um, an initial allocation to EM or even increasing exposure like what we're, we're, we're doing here in client portfolios. I think um, with the Biden administration now in place, our expectation is that um, trade policy as it relates to China will have a little bit more of a sense of calm and stability. We're not of the mindset that Biden and the administration are going to be soft on China necessarily. I know there's a lot of talk about that, you know, before the election and all of that. We, we don't think that that's necessarily the case at all, but we think the approach will be somewhat different. And if you think about, especially in 2019, this just reminds me of, how challenging the market environment was. Every time we got um, a trade policy message via tweet, right, from the prior administration, the market pulled off. It was almost like clockwork. The market struggled so mightily with the volatility around trade policy and tariffs in particular. And so even if we don't make any meaningful changes, on from a policy stance perspective, we think there'll be more of a sense of calm from the market perspective around messaging going forward. And so we're not so much concerned from the U.S. side of the equation um, in terms of the regulatory challenges that may come related to China. It's actually much more from the China side. You know, Ant Group, obviously, in the news a lot, you know, a lot of talk about the challenges related to that, the IPO, you know, what what China's kind of retaliatory actions were likely to be. So it's something that we're watching very, very closely. As I said, it it definitely is something that you can't turn a blind eye to. But we do think in general, on balance, that risk will always exist. It just is less than it once was. And we think, you know, given the fundamental backdrop, given the relative attractiveness around valuations, um, that it's priced appropriately to assume some of that level of risk. Um, now, what about, so when you think about the the volatility you came back to, like when we said this is going to be a year of more volatility, what are the types of things you do to, to protect against that? Is it is it uh, just the tradition, I guess, before I put any words in your mouth, what, what's, what, is, what do you do with, with thinking about this volatility levels that we're having today? Well, what's interesting about it is, you know, everybody automatically assumes a high volatility regime is one focused on equities and two automatically translates into negative market returns. And I have to say, we've seen a ton of volatility in fixed income markets for sure um, at this rapid start to the year. I think um, so, so really in 2021, very likely to see it on both sides of the equation. If you're looking at equities, specifically, um, there are areas that we think are really attractive. One, I'll just throw out one um, just in the interest of time. Global infrastructure is an area that we have found 
a lot of solace and calm in uh, for portfolios over the last few years. And we think it's still a very attractive asset class and um, equity type of exposure to have in portfolios. It has the characteristics to some degree of equities, but also very much quasi-fixed income. And there's usually a very attractive yield associated with it. So when you combine all of those things together, it's a really interesting total uh, return kind of exposure in portfolios, less cyclicality. So we're dialing back some of the volatility versus traditional equities. Um, it gives portfolios a bit of a smoother ride. And so we think that that one, that one has been in portfolios for a couple of years now. We still think just given the, the dynamics that are in place here, makes sense to continue with that or add exposure where, where it doesn't necessarily exist. And so our, our view on this uh, for this volatility regime is, is that the larger than normal price swings are likely to be the norm or the rule rather than the exception. And so we're not of this mindset that, you know, the market's going to collapse and stay down we don't have that bearish of an outlook, but when you have this real choppy market environment and to some degree, a little bit directionless and also to some degree, a little bit devoid of what's happening in the underlying fundamentals. That is the market in our view is so fixated on the headlines and is forgetting about the underlying fundamentals that you want to try to find things that tend to be a little bit less cyclical. It's not like we're backing up the truck and de-risking across the board, but I think adding in targeted exposures there can be very helpful. On the fixed income side, it poses some really interesting challenges because we're effectively at the end of a 40-year bull market in bonds. And so what are you going to do with rates pinned at very low levels? And we're seeing an awful lot of volatility in most fixed income asset classes. The, the closer you are to zero and the longer you stay there, the more likely you are to see volatility. And so rethinking what fixed income is going to do for you in a portfolio is really important in a high volatility regime. And it has forced investors a bit further out the risk curve that is, you know, moving past, uh, you know, investment grade and looking at leverage loans, high yield and, emerging market debt. That one shouldn't be shocking given how favorable we are in emerging markets. But um, we think that there are pockets of opportunity in those asset classes to add some thoughtful ballast, to add some thoughtful yield. Um, but we would not be allocating to those areas in a really significant way. And we would not be looking at purely passive strategies. You have to be really careful about those types of exposures. They can be very helpful in a multi-asset class portfolio, but it you really do have to understand the underlying exposures. And especially in this uncertain time that we continue to find ourselves in, the credit analysis, that individual issuer security analysis that active managers can do to help tilt toward or away from certain benchmark exposures, even countries in the case of emerging markets, that really, really valuable. And so those are some areas that we've been uh, focusing on with clients as well this year. We're talking with Amanda Agati, who is the uh, chief investment strategist for PNC Asset Management. Uh, interesting, Amanda. One of the risks um, coming back to the volatility, you, you touched on potential tax hikes coming as they try to get these new, um, you know, negotiations and further bills passed. How concerned do you see your clients on taxes? What are the kinds of things they're doing now? If they're doing anything to get ahead of it? And what are the market implications for what could be most negatively hit by any change in tax regimes here? Well, I think what's interesting is that it's basically faded from the market narrative. You know, if you think back to the lion's share of 2020, I mean, there were so many things to be worried about. One of, But one of the most consistent questions we got was, all right, well, if Biden wins, the market's going to collapse, right? Because tax hikes are coming right back into the equation. Of course, Biden wins the market rallies, right? Then there's concern around the Georgia Senate runoff. So this potential Dem sweep scenario playing out, of course, the Dem sweep and the market rallies again. And so I just have to laugh that, you know, it's one of those things where it felt like the consensus was completely on one side of the equation. And then, of course, the market uh, surprises all of us. 
We definitely think that tax hikes will start to become part of the story again. Um, but we're hoping that it's much more of a 2022 event when both the economy is on stronger footing and earnings growth has really had a chance to meaningfully rebound um, from the depths of the pandemic. I think back in the fall, we were talking about this idea that if we saw a full repeal of the Trump tax cuts, that it could potentially impact um, earnings growth in 2021 to the tune of about 11 to 12 percent. So pretty significant hit, effectively cutting in half the S&P 500's consensus expectation for growth this year, which is about 24 percent. I think what we're hearing out of Washington is that it is not likely to be that draconian. That is, if something were to start being pulled together, more likely that it will hit somewhere in the middle. So more in the five to six percent range. Let me be clear. There's no scenario where the market will be happy uh, with tax increases coming into the equation, especially at current valuations. We don't think there's a lot of shock absorber there if that really does come to fruition and soon. And so we're very mindful of that one, even though we know that it's tough to get done. Um, just very, very, uh, you know, with, with the, the makeup in Congress not being completely lopsided, that's, we do think that that will mean it slows down a lot of these meaningful policy changes. So it, it isn't that the rhetoric won't pick up. We certainly think it will. But we think the timing is not going to be quite as fast and quite as easy as perhaps some may think. And so definitely on our radar for yeah. not if it hits, but just kind of when it hits. Um, as for what clients are doing, you know, again, I think there was more concern last year than there is at this point um, in the year because it really has kind of faded from the story. So uh, we're not fielding anywhere near as many questions around, you know, tax implications, asset location, that sort of thing um, as we were previously. Most of the questions are really just kind of focused around corporate taxes specifically, whereas I think last year it was really across the board, really broad in terms of personal income tax rates, cap gains, all that kind of stuff. A lot of those fears, I think, have subsided, at least for the short run. Yeah, I, I've always wondered if the tax story is going to be centered on tech. Um, and now you've got a few different things because you got the cap gain story. If people were trying to sell tech, uh, maybe some of that happened late last year. I don't know. Um, then you've got you know a lot of these companies don't pay a lot of taxes. They go abroad for taxes. Um, and then you've got the, um, you know, the Biden team appointing the, the sort of Tim Wu, who's been called the critic of big tech. Is is that part of the, a worry fear or you just uh, not worry about any of those things there? Well, I think it's, you always have to be mindful of you know, policy changes in terms of impacting the markets. It's certainly something on the radar. It's effectively always been on the radar, though. This is not necessarily new or revolutionary you know when when you're the perennial winners um like what you've seen in big tech kind of year after year you're naturally going to have a target on your back in a lot of different ways and so i'm not surprised to see kind of the rhetoric pick up around big tech specifically um at the end of the day i think we were, we were more fixated on as opposed to taxes specifically um you know the potential for meaningful regulatory um, headwinds around breakups and that sort of thing. That was really dominating the conversation in the second half of last year. I think some of that, again, has faded a bit. But based on our analysis, even if that really low probability but worst-case scenario came to fruition, we actually th think that some of the parts for many of these big tech um, behemoths is worth more than the whole. Effectively, it could potentially unlock some of this conglomerate discount. And so Again, always mindful, always having policy risks, regulatory risks, certainly tax risk on the radar, definitely incorporating that into our investment thesis, weighing the pros and cons. But that's not enough uh, for us to walk away from that exposure here in the short run. In terms of other big themes that you focused on, I see one of the in, in your, your outlook pieces, you talked a little bit about secular trends to ESG investing, sustainability. How, how, how is PNC, how are you thinking about that, incorporating that in, into your views? 
Well, we have uh, a number of solutions, holistic portfolio solutions developed around emphasizing different values or intentions or missions that our clients are interested in um, gaining exposure to. I think, um, you know, this is an area of just tremendous growth, you know, whereas I think the industry at large is somewhat challenged to find meaningful secular growth trends and, and drivers. That is the asset management industry at large. This is an area just as a function of the intergenerational wealth transfer that's you know already underway, maybe early innings, but still underway. This is an area for us that we think has a ton of opportunity and a ton of leg run, right? They're not thinking about thinking about raising rates. And so we still think it's going to be a pretty tough slog from a policy perspective and in getting any additional juice out of rates. And then to, you know, their continuation around QE, we think that that's just going to limit some of the levers that um, traditional players in the financial sector may have to pull over the foreseeable future. So we're definitely watch. I, I think the whole, the whole cryptocurrency phenomenon is just, so fascinating uh, and the potential innovation there after really you know 10 plus years of a drought in terms of innovation is just really neat to see how this evolves but there's a number of different directions that these things go this is not one size fits all and they're not all aiming at the same types of use cases you know is there a digital gold substitute in in bitcoin you know certainly ether is more aimed at decentralized finance, thinking about some of the other coins in terms of fintech and payments, like how can that help evolve the current process? I think and how do we position portfolios around sustainability and environmentally friendly goals? And so without getting too, too in the weeds on that, I think it's a really important strategic growth initiative for us, and we look forward to partnering very, very closely with our clients and prospects going forward on all aspects of that. It's not one size fits all, and it's not easy either. You really have to come at it from a bunch of different angles. But, you know, the, the, the days in the past of just applying a negative screen and kicking something out of a portfolio are so far in the rearview mirror. It's really thinking about positive and negative screening, impact investing, ESG integration, having a voice through proxy voting. Um, there, there's a lot of different ways that you can go at it, but ultimately it's very, very unique and personal to the client, uh, the client's goals and objectives. Well, that's a great way to end. Amanda, where can people stay in touch with your views if they want to, if they like what they heard, where, they, where can they find all your work? Well, you can certainly go to the insight section of PNC.com. You can also follow me and my madness on, on Twitter at Amanda Agati PNC. We, we don't put all of our publications out on Twitter, but you'll definitely get a feel for the things that are top of mind for me and for the team from an investment strategy perspective. Well, no, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us for the full show. Uh, it's been a real pleasure getting to, getting to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. Uh, we've been, we talk with Amanda Gotti, the Chief Investment Strategist of uh, PNC Asset Management. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Thanks to our sound engineer running the, 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 the team here, Chris Tukes, today. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.